Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, our text this morning is verses 9 to 11. You know, when it gets Christmas time and you know, we're focused a lot on uh, Christ coming into the world, uh, the faithfulness of God in sending the Son in the fullness of time, as the Scripture says. You know, sometimes you wrestle with wondering what it is that you should uh, present to the congregation at Christmas. But a passage like what we have today, here in Romans, just continuing on from what we normally do, gives us such hope and should produce in us a greater thanks unto the, our Lord, a greater adoration and praise for Him coming into the world. To understand that the greatest gift that has been given to mankind is Christ Himself. And these verses present that, not only um, present Christ as being the one who has imputed His righteousness to us, as we've read before, it's reiterated here, but just to think about the blessing of God residing with his people because of the work of Christ. You have such a gift that has been granted to you if indeed you are in Christ. You have the living God who resides within you. That the people of God, regardless of what your eschatology is, that the people of God, the reality is from the scripture, are the temple of God. You are a holy place, collectively, corporately, and individually of the Spirit of God, to commune with Him, to fellowship with Him, not only to fellowship with Him, but through Him, to fellowship with the Father and through Christ Jesus. You have that privilege. You've been granted that blessing. And so those are the things that we are looking at today in our text. We had previously looked at the verses, verses 5 through 8, where he was really giving us an understanding of what it is to be in the flesh, contrasting those who are in the flesh from those in the spirit. He had began this back in verse 4 when he had said, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. He begins this contrast. He gives us many characteristics of those that are in the flesh. And now he's turning his attention back to those who do walk according to the Spirit. Not to make them question whether or not that they are in the faith, but to have them to realize even further that they are in the faith. That they have been given this blessing of God. And it isn't just a, a blessing that we have in the present, but it is a blessing that gives us such a hope of the future. Not just in this life, but then in the life to come. It helps us also to understand even more so of that, that conflict between the two. Even though we are new creations in Christ, we still recognize that the remnants of the old man are still there. Not that we have two different natures conflicting with each other. You have a new nature that has been granted to you by the Spirit of God. But we are still contending with the remnants of corruption as many of the historic uh, creeds and confessions Describe, we are still uh, in this body of death, as what Paul says. But one thing I do want us to understand, too, as we work our way through this, when it comes to understanding that, that dichotomy, 
that you have the inner man and you have the outer body. Paul has, has alluded to this already. That we shouldn't just think of our bodies as being just bodies of sin that are going to be done away, etc. What we're going to see here, at least a little bit, he's going to go into it further. But you have to understand, too, that the body itself is going to be redeemed. It's not just the inner soul. It's not just the inner man. It's the body. Your body is going to be redeemed as well. So there is much to be thankful for, much to look unto Christ and to say thank you and to praise his holy name for these gifts that have been given, even in view of the conflict that we find ourselves in. We've talked much about assurance throughout the book of Romans. And the book of Romans presents to us the reality of the Christian life in order to give us hope, to give us encouragement. Because we are so down on ourselves whenever we fall into sin, we wonder how can we be saved, etc., etc. We've been over that. But he continues to reiterate these truths. That though you are in still, or you're in that body of sin as, as he describes, yet the Spirit is alive in you. And the Spirit is alive in you, gives you life because of Christ. And these are things to be encouraged by. Yes, I still sin. Yes, you still sin. Yes, we say things that we shouldn't. We do things that we shouldn't. And yet at the very same time, we have to remember this, that it's the Spirit of God in us who gives us life. We can't sanctify ourselves. We can't give ourselves life. It's him who does this work in us and has secured this work for us. All of this is founded upon the great work of Christ coming into the world that we celebrate this time of year. Not just to come into the world to be a baby in a manger, but to come into the world to be the savior of the world. He came for a purpose. And that purpose was to secure the redemption of his people. And the benefits of that and the experience of that we see in our text today. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 9, reading through verse 11. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. God's word says... However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for all that it teaches us concerning our state before you, concerning the privileges that we have in you. Father, we pray that you would adhere this passage to our hearts, apply it to our hearts by your spirit whom you've granted to us. Give us encouragement, give us comfort, give us joy recognizing who we are in Christ. Pray, Father, that your word would go forth, accomplishing all you desire in us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. Just to recap real quick. <clears throat> in verse 4, he presents two different groups of people, 
those that are in the flesh and those that are in the spirit, who walk in the spirit, and those who walk according to the flesh. He continues that contrast in verses 5 through 8. And just to remind us of some of the things that we found here, beginning of verse 5, he says, For those who are according to the flesh, this is in the realm of the flesh being dominated by sin, the realm of sin. That's the idea there. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. So you have two different groups. They, they reason two different ways. We talked about this. That when you only have an unregenerate heart, when you are only in your sin and dominated by sin, sin is your master, as Paul has said a number of times already. And Paul says elsewhere that you are dead in your trespasses and sin and are by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Now you consider this. You have that state of man to where even the early chapters of Genesis say that the thought and the intent of man's heart is only evil continuously. His thoughts are evil from his youth. Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. So you have all of this description right here to describe the state of the unbelievers. They make decisions according to their very nature. We talk about free will. Do they have free will? They absolutely have free will according to their nature. According to their nature, which is dominated by sin and only sinful. So they make decisions accordingly. They think on the things of the flesh, the things of sin. You put them in different categories, as Richard has elaborated for us before, of the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. All sin can fall into those categories. This is the natural man. This is how they think. This is how they reason. They do not reason according to reality as it is in God's world. That's why we see the craziness that we do today, because they have rejected the only worldview that actually comports with reality. And they have turned aside to fables and turned aside to myths and turned aside to just irrational understandings of things. But it should not come as a surprise because they're sinners. We should never be surprised by that. Why do sinners do what they do? Because they're sinners. Then you have those that walk according to the Spirit. Those who walk according to the Spirit are those who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Or as the Scripture says, made alive together with the Spirit. You have been brought to life, that spiritual resurrection as the Scripture describes for us. You've been given the mind of Christ. You've been given a new heart and a new will to desire the things of God, to walk in paths of righteousness for His namesake, to desire to do so. You have great affection for God now, whereas before you did not. What changed? The Holy Spirit did a mighty work within you. And so the pattern of your life is different now. You no longer set your minds on the things of the flesh and, uh, and, and walk according to the flesh because now you have been born again or as, as Jesus says, born from above and now your life is patterned after the Spirit of God. And so you think the things of God, you desire the things of God. And so you have two strong contrasts here, or, or a contrast of, of two different groups here. Now going back to those who are of the flesh... He says, for the mindset on the flesh is death. It exists in the state of death. As we talked about, spiritual death is the idea. The mindset on the flesh, he says, is death. 
It doesn't result in death. We know it does result in death, but he says here that it is death, and we talked about that, that it exists in the state of death, that spiritual death that we've talked about already uh, as Paul elaborates on in Ephesians 2. For the mindset on the flesh is death, the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. You have a strong contrast there. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. Now, why is Paul giving his readers all of this, uh, this description? Well, if we just consider the things that have been said thus far in the book of Romans and how much assurance has been taught throughout the book of Romans, he's once again establishing to, that assurance within the life of the believers there. These are the things that you can look at in your own life and, and help you to determine that you are indeed in Christ. The first thing, the first thing that gives us assurance is not performance, but it is looking outside of yourself to another. Your assurance is in another, which is Christ. Your assurance is in his work, in his performance, in his redemptive work, all of that. And if you are trusting in that alone, that's what brings saving faith, justification, all of that. But we recognize, too, that for those that are in the Spirit, who walk according to the Spirit, who are in Christ, we recognize that there is a, a dramatic change within their life to desire the things of God now. So, he once again establishes some characteristics here. The mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It is at enmity with God. It is an enemy of God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. And it's not even able to do so. And those that are in the flesh, he says in verse 8, cannot please God. There is nothing that an unregenerate person can do to please God. That's what he says. Those in the flesh cannot please God. They're at enmity with God. They're hostile towards God. They don't submit themselves to the law of God. That is why whenever you bring up the law of God and you begin to talk about the law of God, people are automatically antagonistic against it. Why? Because they don't submit themselves to the law of God. And the law of God, as we've talked about, is, is summed up. It's not the exhaustive moral law of God, but it is summed up. In the Ten Commandments, we look at that. That covers sexual sin and coveting and murder and all of this sort of thing. Not honoring our Lord, which is the foundation of the second tablet, all of that. They're enemies of God, and so they don't submit themselves to the law of God, and he says they're not even able to do so. And that word we talked about, uh, not even able, uh, is, is denoting ability. That's the idea. They don't have the ability is exactly what Paul says there, to submit themselves to the law of God. They're not able to do so. They can't please God. So you have those characteristics of those that are in the flesh, those that are hostile towards God, the unregenerate. They're in a state of death, as Paul says, dead in trespasses and sin. But then he says these words to, to not try to elicit from his readers uh, to question their salvation or to question whether they're in Christ, but to help firmly establish them even more. And he says some extraordinary things here, specifically about the, the dwelling of God here in order to bring that joy and that comfort and encouragement to his readers. He says, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. He's, he says further, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. And that is not, again, to present 
them to, or, or not said in this way in order to bring them to question whether they are or not. The text actually should read, uh, it can be translated two different ways, if as is the case, or since in fact this is so, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's the idea. It's establishing the reality of the believers that they have the Spirit of God in them. They are not in the flesh. They are not in the domain of sin. They are not under the mastery of sin. They have a new master. They are ruled by another. Paul's talked about that already. They are ruled by Christ. They have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness or the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son, as Paul says elsewhere. They've been raised from death to life because God intervened in their life. When we talked about Ephesians 2 last week, you're dead and trespasses and sins, all of that. But then those words, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with him. Who made you alive? God did. When he made you alive, he made you alive through the spirit of God who now dwells in you. Now you think of what he's saying there. You think of, this isn't just something to gloss over because we talk about the indwelling Holy Spirit and, and sometimes maybe we get so used to that language that we don't really consider what he is saying here. But the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the living God, who spoke creation into existence, who upholds it by the very power of his word, the one who dwells in the heavens, the earth is his footstool, he does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth. This God, the only God, who dwells in unapproachable light, who is the king of kings, dwells in you. Just think of that for a moment. The Holy One. The one whom the angels cry out, holy, holy, holy. They, they're referred to as seraphim, which is translated fiery serpents. If you read the text of Isaiah 6, they're, they're flying around the throne of God, they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. They cover their eyes with two of their wings. They cover their feet with two of their wings, and with two wings they fly. That they're literally on fire with the glory of God, being in his immediate presence, not even able to gaze upon him. In the presence of this God, through the Spirit of God, dwells in you. You, beloved are the temple of God. You are the holy place of God. Now he says, we'll get into more of that in a moment, but <clears throat> he goes on to say this, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. It was very interesting that he would call the Holy Spirit the spirit of Christ here. And you wonder why it is that he would say that. One, he's definitely... Uh, clearly establishing the unity of the Godhead in the agreement among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit because the whole epistle to the Romans is emphasizing Christ and his work and then giving the therefore in chapter 12. And so to help with this agreement among his readers, especially those that are the Jewish readers, he says, this is the Spirit of Christ. Now think of what the, what the work of the Spirit is. It is the Spirit of God who brings God's people to faith. 
It is the Spirit of God who gives them faith in order that they may call upon Christ. It's the Spirit of God who is sent by Christ himself after Christ has completed his work. It's being, he's being sent by both the Father and the Son to gather the bride. It is showing the agreement between the Spirit and Christ as well. As Jesus himself had said that it's expedient that I go, for if I go, I will send you another helper, another advocate. And he is in reference to the Holy Spirit, and that word another is one of the same kind. And so he's establishing that it is God who is dwelling, but it is also in unity with himself. The Spirit is the advocate after Christ has ascended to take the place of Christ's presence on earth. It shows the necessity as well of having the Spirit of God is, is necessitated upon you calling upon Christ. That there is salvation in no other. If you do not have the Spirit of Christ, he says, you do not belong to him. Or it actually says you are not of him. And it is demonstrating that possession. You are not possessed by him. You do not belong to him. That automatically rules out any other belief system as those who reject Christ do not have the spirit of Christ in them, do not have the spirit of God in them. And it also establishes those who are in Christ, those who are God's own possession, who are God's treasured ones. And it is those who call upon Christ in faith. For any other, they do not have the spirit of Christ they do not belong to him. Parents, you cannot save your children. God saves your children. You cannot save your spouse. You cannot save your aunts and your uncles and your cousins and your friends. It is the Spirit of God who does this mighty work. We can't preach anyone into the kingdom If they don't have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to him. That isn't to say that one day maybe they will belong to him. But this is the reality. This is the hard reality that we have to face. And facing this hard reality is what helps us even more so to pursue those that we love. To pursue those that we love and to give them the gospel continually because it's not in vain. God's word will go forth and accomplish all he desires for it to do. And so understanding this reality, not glossing over it, but to understand that if whoever doesn't have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to him. And so this is going to drive me even more because I love them. I'm going to give them the gospel. Because I love them and I want to see them come to faith, I'm praying for them constantly, and that's what you need to do too. But in order to have that kind of a drive and that kind of a motivation to do so, you have to establish the first reality of this is if they don't have the Spirit of God, they don't have Christ. And they don't belong to Him. At least not yet. But if you think about it, this in your own life, the very thing that gives us hope is to know that it doesn't matter what 
We do. We understand that it is all in God's hands. But think of the time in which you were converted. When were you converted in your life? Some may be converted at a young age. Some may be converted in the older ages. Because there is no one time in which God saves a person. He does so in his time. That's why as long as they have breath in their lungs, there is always hope. Always. And that's why you continue to do what you know to be right. To give them the gospel. Because it's only the gospel that the Spirit of God uses to bring them to faith. But the flip side of this is, for those who do have the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, you do belong to Him. And you are His treasured possession. You think that He has made you the apple of His eye for no other reason than He simply chose to do so. No obligation to make you anything but because of his great love with which he loved us he makes us alive together with Christ you belong to him you are his you are his treasured possession you are the apple of his eye what a God we serve what a gracious God that we serve, because if we just consider our own life before our own conversion, we didn't give any of this any thought, because we didn't care. We lived our life however we desired to, in lawlessness, indulging in the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh. I remember I had one of my cousins who continually would preach at me, literally in the vehicle. I couldn't listen to the radio. I couldn't listen to nothing because I had to hear it from the passenger. And I kept thinking to myself, when is he ever just going to shut up? I am so sick of hearing this. Sometimes you come up with excuses why we can't ride together. But at God's appointed time in my life, as it was in yours, all of a sudden, all of these things started making sense. All of a sudden, they click in your mind. And you think, how did I miss this? How amazing God is. I remember um, my wife used to have to uh, bribe me to go to church. And she used to bribe me, it sounds so dumb. She used to bribe me with food, because I like food. <laughs> she would say, she would go to wake me up, and she would say, we'll go to old Charlie's. And I'm thinking, black and prime rib, absolutely. But then one day, I can explain to you why, and this is one of those instances, as, as some of you have shared with me as well, I cannot pinpoint to you when it was I was converted. I have no idea. I know that one day I woke up on a Sunday, and I literally sat up in bed, realizing it's Sunday, and, and, and I thought, oh, Lord, you have done so much for me, and what have I done for you? I've done nothing. 
I've done nothing for you except to squander the time that you've given me. And then that set me on that new path. And that's what happens. That's what happens when God does a work within us. He changes us to all of a sudden desire the things of God and to desire Christ and to call upon Christ. And it happens when God appoints for it to happen. And so then the one who's praying for me, my wife who is praying for me, all of a sudden those, those things came about. And don't ever stop praying for your loved ones. Here's something to remember. We believe absolutely in the sovereignty of God. We emphasize that often. And once we get to Romans 9, who knows? We may just stay there. But we also recognize that God uses particular means in order to bring about his will. God has declared the end from the beginning. His counsel will stand. He would do all his good pleasure. We know that. He works all things after the counsel of his will, but that includes the prayers of his people. The prayers of his people God uses in order to bring about his will. And a prime example of that is Moses. Moses, in his intercessory prayer for the people in Exodus 32, 33, 34, right in there. That's a prime example of God using this means, which is the prayer of Moses, to withhold wrath from his people and to grant mercy. Don't ever give up on your loved ones. You just never know. And as long as they still breathe, there is always hope. And on the flip side, consider that great gift of knowing that you belong to him and the great blessing of belonging to him, that that motivates you in life to live for him. The spirit of God dwells in you, he says. You are the holy place of God. But then he goes on to say this in verse 10. He says, if Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Now, he just said that the spirit of God dwells in you. But then he now speaks of Christ and Christ being in you. He's going to say in verse 11, alluding to the Father being in you. Showing that unity among the Godhead, that unity of purpose, that unity of being, that unity of carrying out the work of redemption. As one theologian has said, where one is, the other two are there. And because they are in agreement with the redemption of, of their people, of his people, then that ensures that none will be lost. None will be forgotten. So if Christ is in you, and that is very, very important to remember this, we, we talk about the Spirit of God dwelling in us, that the, it's the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. But yet we cannot deny this, this very fact of that the Spirit of God is always united to the Son and always united to the Father. So where one is, the other two are. And Jesus even uses that kind of language in John chapter 14. In John chapter 14, he says in verse 23... Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, 
he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and will come, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Now, them making their abode with the people of God is indeed through the Spirit of God. But we recognize the unity among the Godhead. The perfect unity and the perfect fellowship, the perfect love, all of that, because the Holy Spirit resides in you, it is indeed proper to say that Christ is in you and the Father is in you. He says this, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive. Now, some of your translations may have uh, the Spirit here in a capital S. Mine only has it in a lowercase s. But it actually should be an uppercase s. Alluding to the Spirit of God. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, and Paul has already spoken about this, because that there still remains remnant of corruption in us, that sin has affected us to the extent that all of us will die. At some point, because of sin, we will all die. This body of corruption, this body of death, as Paul calls it, the body is dead because of sin, Yet the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, he says, mine says here, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness, but it actually reads in the original language, yet the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, is life because of righteousness. Not alive, but he says the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, now considering this again, these are things that we've already had elaborated on earlier in Romans up to this point, but he keeps on reiterating these truths. Because the Spirit of God in you is, is the Spirit of life. He's the one who gives not only physical life, but spiritual life. He dwells in you, though you are in this body of corruption, this body of death, as Paul calls it. Because he dwells in you, you will have life. That's the emphasis here. That's the idea. Yes, because of corruption, you are going to die. Because of sin, you are going to die. Because of sin, death comes into the world. That's what he says in Romans 5. Yet even in view of our deaths that will come at God's appointed time, the emphasis is that because the spirit of life is in you, you also will have life. You will have life hereafter. You will have life with God himself. And that life is granted to you because of righteousness. Some of the very things that he's already talked about. The imputed righteousness of Christ is granted to you. And because the imputed righteousness of Christ, the perfection of Christ, the perfection of Christ the, that has fulfilled the righteousness of the law of God, because God demands absolute perfection, we couldn't do it, so Christ did it for us. That perfection, that righteousness is imputed to you through faith. And on the basis of exercising that faith, that imputed righteousness to you, you are justified, declared just in the eyes of God, declared not guilty in the eyes of God. And so the sentence of death is no longer upon you, but now the granting of life. You have life now. Even if we die, Jesus says, even if a man dies, he will live. How is that? Because the spirit of life dwells in you. 
These are things that the readers would have understood. Because what Paul is saying here to the Roman church are things that are contained within the Scripture elsewhere that we have read a number of times. In Ezekiel 36... In Ezekiel 36, he says, beginning of verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." You think of this work of God in you, that he places the spirit of God in you, his spirit. He takes out your heart of stone. He gives you a heart of flesh. He sprinkles clean water on you, which speaks of the cleansing work of the spirit of God in you. To cleanse you from all your sins, because the spirit of God is applying that to you. To cleanse you from all your idols and from all your filthiness and to cause you to walk in His righteous statutes, this is all the work of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit in us, making us alive, giving us spiritual life, granting us eternal life. He is indeed the spirit of life, and all of this is founded upon Christ Jesus, his work, his work in living for us, fulfilling the righteousness of the demands of the law of God, for taking our place on the cross, enduring the very wrath of God in our place and satisfying the justice of God and rising again, conquering death, conquering all of his enemies, and then allowing us to partake in that victory as well. Because he lives, we will live also. Christ is the one who dwells in you as well and the Father. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, this is a little bit more of this great blessing that we have in Christ. Not only when we close our eyes here, we open our eyes with the Lord in the intermediate state. And when I say intermediate state, it's the recognition of this, that at the time of your death, Your spirit goes home to be with the Lord. Your body goes to the grave. And yet you are in a perfected state. You are with Christ. You are experiencing joy and all of that. But he elaborates on something further here in verse 11. The spirit of God dwells in you, he says in verse 9. And you belong to him. You're his possession. In verse 10, it's Christ who dwells in you because of his work of, of redemption, all of that. And you are granted the gift of life. But now in verse 11, it is the Father who also is dwelling in you. He is the one who raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And actually the Spirit is um, also one who is said to have raised Christ from the dead. Jesus himself also said, if I lay down my life, I take it up again. You see the unity again of the triune God. But he says to give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is another great blessing. Actually, the culmination. The culmination of your salvation is what's being um, alluded to here. 
and that is your glorification. We know that our body goes to the dust of the earth, our spirit goes home to be with the Lord. But when the great day comes, you will be glorified in Christ. So you have passages that talk about, uh, well, like 1 Thessalonians 4. Yeah, 1 Thessalonians 4, when the Lord descends with the shout and with the voice of an archangel, the trumpet of God, he says, the dead in Christ rise first. What does that mean? That the dead in Christ rise first. That those who have already went on to be with the Lord in the intermediate state are once again reunited into a phys- or with a physical glorified body. And then we who are alive and remain in his coming will be changed and caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So those who are alive at the coming of our Lord will be changed from the corruptible into the incorruptible, as Paul says. But those others who have died before will be reunited into a physical glorified body first. This is the culmination of our salvation. This is that future glorification Paul says in a few passages here, he says in Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even, that he has even to subject all things to himself. And then you go to 1 John, and then John talks about that, We don't really know what we're going to be like. We just know we're going to be like him. And that is the culmination of your salvation that is being expounded here. Because the Father dwells in you. And the Father, specifically here in this passage, being the one said to have raised Christ Jesus from the dead, it is he also who will raise your mortal bodies and give you life. Your glorification at God's appointed time as well. You have all the blessings that are being given here. The blessing of the present time, knowing that you belong to our Lord, that you are his possession, that you are the temple of the living God, that you are, as what Peter says, that you are living stones that are being built up into a spiritual house, that Paul says elsewhere that Christ Jesus is the cornerstone, he and the apostles. You have Jesus himself says that I will build my church. And then after you leave this world, you have that blessing of knowing that you still have life after. After you close your eyes here. And then you still have something even greater to look forward to on the last day when our Lord will glorify you in himself. We wonder at times maybe what it is that God has done for us or maybe that we forget Sometimes we are very self-centered people, very self-righteous people, self-focused people. And we wonder, what is it that you've done? Think of all the things that I'm going through right now in my life, oh Lord. Where are you and what have you done? And then you have passages like this that remind you, you are God's own possession. That you will be with him after you leave this world. And he has something even far greater than that to look forward to on the last day. When we think of the work of Christ, 
We think of this time of year, rather, and Christ coming into the world and the baby in a manger, which is an extraordinary thing to think of because you have him, a baby, lying in a feeding trough, looking up at the stars that he in the very moment is still upholding by the word of his power. It is an extraordinary thing to consider the incarnation. But you can't stop there. You have to think of why he came. And he came with a view to the redemption of his people to give these great blessings to you. So as you gather with your families, you, you gather with uh, friends, or you just in prayer today and tomorrow, you remember just some, just some of what God has done for you in Christ. Just remember some of these great blessings of what you now experience, what you have to look forward to and what you have to look forward to on the final day. You are so blessed. And to know that you are so blessed, dear friends, that should motivate us to want to live for Christ, to do for Christ, because you don't want to squander the time that's been given to you. That's easy to do. And when you stand before the Lord, what if he were to ask you that question? What did you do with the time I gave you? What are you going to say? I squandered it. You know, Jonathan Edwards, as I've shared with you before, on his sermon that he did on the use of time and redeeming the time from Ephesians. When he gets to the application part of the sermon, he says, come with me to the deathbed. And I will show you those that would give anything to have one moment of your time. Then he says, and descend with me to the very bowels of hell. And he says, and I will show you those that would give anything to have one moment of your time. Dear friends, you are so blessed. You are so blessed, and these are the things that you have received. Don't squander your time. Live your life in view of what God has done for you. Live to glorify him, live to magnify him, live to honor him, and to give him thanks because he's worthy of that. Remember what it is that he's done for you at this time of year, not just to focus on the baby, but to focus on the man who carried out the work of redemption. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you are, all that you have done for us in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have blessed us so richly in him. You've, you've given us an abundance, O oh Lord. Your word says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And in Christ you have given us all things. For you have given us your spirit to dwell with us, to conform us, to bring us such joy. And in our time of need, he is there. I remember one theologian saying, commenting, of the great gifts that you give to your people, that you give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. He says, you ask for the gift, but you've given us the giver. We ask for truth, you've given us the truth teacher. We ask for help, you've given us the helper. We ask for comfort, and you've given us the comforter. We ask for the product. You've given us the source. 
You've given us everything that we need in the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the gift that you've granted us through Christ by granting him to us. And I pray, Father, that he would do a mighty work within us, continually conforming us to be all that you desire, to make us ready for the great day. May we be thinking of these things at this time of year, that our hearts would be lifted up to you to honor you even more. Father, if there are any here who do not know you, that are still under the dominion of sin, I pray that, Father, today that you would deliver them. Father, remove them from the domain of sin and grant them life in your Son. May they call upon Christ with saving faith, Father, to know these blessings that we have spoken of today. Father, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's children said, Amen. If you would.